uh, and chapter 8. Originally, we were going to start a new series on Titus, but rather than start it now and then have to uh, close it up for about a month, uh, I thought I'd leave it to come back from holidays before we start it. So this is uh, going back to Romans is really tying up one loose end um, in that I didn't get to finish preaching through the first eight chapters of Romans. We got the first half of chapter eight uh, before Christmas passed. Uh, and now I want to just try and finish, finish that off uh, as we look at the second half of Romans chapter 8 uh, this morning. So I want to begin by reading from verse 17 through to the end of Romans chapter 8. And this is what Paul says. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those who justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, 
neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's uh, join our hearts together in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come once more to look upon your word of truth, we ask again that you will open our eyes that we may see you as you really are, that you will open our ears that we may hear and understand this message, and that you will open our hearts that we might receive it and rest assured in it and in your grace to us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I'll put a health warning on this uh, in that we are taking a look at an awful lot of very dense theology, uh, and we don't have an awful lot of time to do it, um, so please try and stick with it. Um, I'll do my best to try and navigate a way through it that's helpful for us. Now, when we looked at um, Romans before Christmas passed, uh, we, we saw throughout the first eight chapters that Paul Paul was making an argument. He was building it up as each chapter progressed, an argument that went through some some very long Paul-type sentences and some very dense theological reasoning. But it was Paul setting out the gospel and how it affects the Christian life as he wrote to his brothers and sisters in the church in Rome. And as he reaches chapter 8, Paul has begun to conclude conclude a lot of what he has said in the previous eight chapters. After dealing with us, uh, dealing for us uh, about the reason that the gospel is the power of God for salvation in chapter 1 and how it saves us from the wrath of God, uh, how he dealt with the purpose of the law in chapters 3, how we are then made righteous through the sacrificial death of Christ and that by faith alone into chapter 4. He then turned in chapter 5 to show us what that meant for our present life as Christians. How we were brought out of Adam, out of the old way into, into Christ, into the new life. And now we live towards God. We serve a new master. But yet we still struggle Chapter 7, we still struggle with that remainder of Adam, that flesh in our own life now, that sin that dwells within us. Yet he comes to Romans chapter 8 verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now we live by the Spirit. The Spirit seals us, he is the guarantee that we will be the children of God, co-heirs with Christ when we will be raised like him on the last day. It's all very powerful, all wonderful stuff for a Christian to hear. But I notice, if you will, the game changer that Paul puts in there in verse 17. We're heirs of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We we have the kingdom. We're in his adopted family. We're in the, the family of God. But if we're to share in his glory... We must also be willing to share in his suffering. The path the Christian treads in this life is the long, hard route towards glory. It is not glorious now. Now we are called to suffer with Christ before we experience that glory. All the wonderful benefits of the gospel that we receive, our redemption, our adoption, our new life, our our union with Christ... We have all these, 
But we still struggle. We still struggle with our sinfulness. Remember chapter 7? We still are called to put to death the misdeeds of the body, as Paul has said in the first part of Romans 8. And in our own experiences, as we live our lives, we know that there's more than this, more than just the indwelling sin. We, we suffer. We hurt. We experience pain. We experience loss. We see it in our everyday lives. We see the brokenness that sin has caused in, in friends, in family, in relationships. And we ourselves, the heirs and adopted children, we're not free from those things. We're not free from the effects of suffering and the hardship. That's what Paul is saying here. Suffering is the experience of the children of God in this age. Until suffering and pain are taken away. Now, suffering, of course, is one of those topics that people like to use as an excuse to dismiss any notion of the existence of God or, or Christianity. And in many ways, it's a very difficult topic to deal with. It's because it's so intensely personal for people. Just at uh, the moment, there is a considerable political pressure being brought to bear on our politicians by the euthanasia lobby. And in many ways, it is motivated by the awful effects of suffering. Nobody likes to see loved ones go through suffering, experience suffering. Nobody likes to experience it themselves. We can think of a lot of awful things that we know have happened. Think of Oliver Gill being born with cancer. It's hard to take in that such things would be allowed in God's world. But then if we remove God from the equation altogether, that doesn't really help us very much. To deal with it, does it? For if God's not really there, then what is the purpose of suffering? Indeed, why should we be outraged by suffering at all if it's simply our lot in life? We should just stop complaining and get on with it. Like that atheist bus slogan from a year or so back, you know. There's probably no God, just get on with your life. Stop worrying about it. It was a fantastic cartoon, I think it was in The Spectator, which pictured a bus with this sign on it going over a cliff and everybody falling out of it to their, plummeting to their death. There's probably no God. Just get over it. It doesn't really help us. Or do we go the whole way and the youth, as the euthanasia lobby would advocate and just prematurely terminate our lives? Or to call it as it really is, state-sponsored murder. Once we take God out of the picture, then suffering becomes as normal as breathing. So you get cancer, hard luck. It's just an evolutionary process. Can't do anything about it. Your friend gets AIDS or motor neurons disease. Don't worry about it. Just get on with it. But of course we can't, can we? We can't actually live like that. We all instinctively know that it's not right. We all instinctively know that it shouldn't happen that way. There's something that is in us that automatically tells us to cry out when we see suffering and we see pain in the world. Why do we give food parcels and shelter to the victims of famine in Somalia and not cyanide pills? You see, Paul is very aware that the Christians he is writing to could face suffering if they have not already faced it and are facing it. But here's the thing. 
If we and they are the adopted children of God, if we and they are heirs with Christ, why do we have to suffer like this? Why, if we are God's children now, in this present time, does the experience of our pain and suffering not match up with the fact that we are God's children, heirs of his kingdom? And the answer that Paul gives is that the suffering is worth it in the long run. It's worth it to share in Christ's sufferings that we may also share in his glory. For that glory is incomparably more wonderful and majestic that if you were to compare the suffering and the glory on a gallery, there would be actually no comparison. For the glory that will be revealed in us, notice what he says in verse 18, will be far greater than anything that this we experience, any suffering that we have now in the present age. But here's the question that then begs to be asked. How does he know that? How can he say that with any certainty? And it's this answer that Paul then goes on to give in verses 19 through 30. He speaks here in this passage of two things that we know. And he speaks of one thing that we don't know. And then finally he will sum everything up by telling us that we can never be separated from God's love. In verses 31 to 39. So says Paul in verse 19, the creation itself, which we are part of, which we exist within, awaits the sons of God to be revealed. At the present time, in this age, we have not been revealed in glory. The children of God are not revealed in glory. And so the creation itself waits for a time when those children will be fully revealed. For once we... That is, God's children experience that glory. That glory then is revealed in us. That will be the signal that this creation that we exist within will also be set free from its bondage to decay. Notice what he says in verse 19. For the creation itself, Paul says, has been subjected to frustration. Frustration here simply means futility. Uh, You think of Ecclesiastes, meaningless, meaningless, that's the word. Frustration, futility. That has been done by God himself as he cursed the ground. Remember Genesis chapter 1, or Genesis chapter 3. After the man and woman sinned, God cursed the ground. So what happens is the harmony and the order of creation that God had set out with God's people uh, as his vice regents, the man and the woman, ruling the earth under God's authority, that whole relationship is broken. In the beginning, when God created everything, it was very good. It was very good because it worked as God intended it. But as soon as human beings who ruled over that creation under God decided to abdicate their responsibilities, then that order was broken. Rather than ruling the creation... If we go right back to Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us that now human beings no longer rule the creation under God. They rather worship the creation. They worship and serve created things rather than the creator. And the result is that the creation itself, as we experience it, no longer functions as as it's meant to. It is subject to frustration and to decay, as we ourselves experience it. 
And it's in this present context that we and the creation suffer. We suffer because we are now part of a creation that is not functioning correctly, that longs to be released from its current frustration. The creation is subject to frustration because those whom God intended to rule it no longer do so. And there is now suffering and pain, thorns and thistles, frustration, hardship, and death. Human beings were meant to be the conductors of the vast orchestra of praise that, that creation itself, along with them, would, would bring to God, its designer and creator. But we no longer conduct as we should, and so the whole fails. Creation and non-human creation and human creation is now subjected to this frustration. But this is not a permanent feature of this creation. For God subjected the creation, notice what he says, in hope. In hope that the very creation itself would be set free from this frustration, set free from its bondage to decay, and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Or the freedom of the glory of the children of God, to give it its more literal translation. You see, the creation hopes that when we, God's children, eventually display that glory, when God reveals it in us, then we, will, we ourselves will rule the creation as we were meant to, as God intended us to. We will be proper stewards of it. And so it will be freed from its bondage once more to be able to do that which the Creator designed it to do. Under the stewardship of God's children, praise and worship the God who in the beginning created it all. And so here is the first thing we know. Verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The creation is subject to futility. Subject to the fertility of the curse, it now groans. It longs for a new life as it awaits the children of God to be revealed. What we experience in this life, living in a creation that is groaning, is not the death pangs of a world about to end, but it is rather the birth pains of a creation that is about to be reborn and renewed. The frustrations and the suffering that we experience are but the painful contractions before the new heavens and the new earth are brought into existence by God. Indeed, if we know that it's, it's not just the creation that we exist within that groans, but in verse 23, we ourselves, God's children, God's adopted children, we have the first fruits of the Spirit, as Paul has already said, that is the down payment of the future life, but we also groan. We groan inwardly. We live in a fallen world. We experience the suffering that it entails. We, like creation, groan because we wait. We wait for the final redemption. For the revealing of the glory Paul has spoken of, when all will know who the children of God are, and we will be fully and completely Adopted as his sons and daughters, as we receive those redeemed bodies 
at the resurrection. You see, now, now we're not there yet. Now we experience the weakness of the mortal body. Now we experience the brokenness of the fall, the frustrations of work. We experience pain and loss and death. But we know that this suffering that we experience in this life, this is the birth pangs. This is the pain before the joy of the new world that God will bring. And with a new world, a new creation, will come new resurrection bodies and we will be fully revealed as God's adopted children. We have the first fruits, we have the spirit, we have the starter. We have the new life that the spirit, the spirit dwells within us. Paul has already told us all this in Romans chapter 8, first part of it. But until we sit down in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth to that main course, we will share in Christ's sufferings. All that goes along with a fallen creation as a partly redeemed people longing for our flesh to be renewed. That is our experience. But it's worth it. How can Paul say that? Because the glory that will be revealed will be no small or petty thing. The glory that will be revealed in us is something cosmic in scale and majestic in its magnificence. That we will once more be freed from the effects of the fall to rule the creation as God intended it. A world free from pain and suffering where every tear shall be taken away and death will be no more. This we know. And so now in this life we wait in hope. Verses 24 and 25. And hope here is not some sort of wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is the sure expectation of what has been promised. We know that this current futility of the creation is only a small, sorry, not small, but a part of what we have to go through before we ourselves reach that new creation. And this is what we live. This is how we live. We live in hope. Hope of that new creation. Suffering is hard. It's never pleasant. It's difficult when our bodies give up. It's difficult when we suffer from disease and sickness. But we don't despair. We don't give in. We wait because we know that for God's children, the future far outweighs the present experience. Then secondly, Paul moves on to something that we don't know. Verse 26 to 27. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that the words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes intercedes for the saints in accordance with the will of God. Even amid the sufferings of the present time, as we wait in hope for the revealing of the, the children of God, for that glorious future that God has prepared, God is present. We are not called to share in the sufferings of Christ alone. Indeed, as Christians who have received the first fruits of the Spirit, as Paul has told us, we have the help of the Spirit. God is present with us in the midst of the trial. When our present suffering and groaning results in our confusion of what to pray, we have the assurance that the Spirit is interceding for us. The Spirit groans groans for us in words that cannot be expressed. 
The point here is not about the words or the groans, what these actually might be. The point here is rather that we have the help of the Spirit in our current weakness. And what's more, we have the assurance that as the Spirit intercedes for us, we know that it will be heard. Why? Because the Spirit intercedes in accordance with the will of God. So even when we're not sure how to pray in accordance with God's will, even when we find it difficult to pray as we share in the sufferings of Christ, the Spirit who dwells within us intercedes and knows what to pray for. Verse 27, he who searches hearts, that is God, knows the mind of the Spirit, who is also God. So because they're both in agreement, we know that the interceding of the Spirit on our behalf will be acceptable and therefore will be heard and answered. So even when we don't know, even when we're confused, even when the suffering causes us confusion as to what we should pray, the Spirit groans on our behalf. The Spirit groans on behalf of groaning Christians who suffer in a groaning creation as we await the glorious future that God has prepared for those who love him. So we wait in hope with the help of the Spirit who intercedes for us. But thirdly, Paul tells us something else that we know. Verse 28. We know that all thing, in all things God works together. God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. You see... We know that even when we do experience suffering and the results of a fallen world, that they are not random acts of an unstoppable evolutionary force. Still less are they designed by a capricious distant deity to make us squirm. They are all under the guiding hand of a sovereign father who works them all out in his wonderful providence for a reason. That is, they all work together for the good of those who love God. Those who have been called according to his purpose. Nothing we experience is outside of God's providential hand. All the events that go together to make up our lives have been designed and implemented so that God brings good from them. The obvious biblical example is the life of Joseph. Both the bad and the good, as we would judge them, come together. The people whom we have met and loved, the marriages we have enjoyed and labored over, the children that are born to us, the tears that we have shed over loved ones, the diseases that we have contracted, the food that we have enjoyed, the places that we have visited, the money that has been given to us, the houses we have labored over, the depression we have fought against, the sickness that keeps coming back, the hurt of a broken relationship, the joy of seeing loved ones united, all the joys and the tears, all we experience in this life, we know that God has so sovereignly ordained them that together they are weaved into a plan and purpose that is ultimately for our good. We might not experience them as such when they happen. It might be very painful But when it is all said and done in our lives, God works them all out for the good of those who love him. Those whom he calls by his grace and mercy in the gospel. And the good here that Paul speaks of is not your personal happiness. 
Indeed, it can't even be limited, I guess, to personal good at all because it extends far further. It extends to the whole of creation that God is bringing under Christ. God works the whole thing together so that once more it will be as he intended it to be. Paul further explains this good in verses 29 and 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of a son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, notice the past tense, he also glorified. God's sovereignty not only stretches over the circumstances of our lives as we experience them, but it also stretches over time and our salvation. The salvation that God has given us. For those whom God foreknew, and that is not just knowledge that God had beforehand. To know something in this sense in scripture is much more to do with our relationship. So those whom God entered into relationship with before time are those also whom he predestined. That is their destination is predetermined. It is set before time. And that destination, Paul tells us, is that we should be conformed to the image of of his son, God's son. Jesus perfectly displayed the image of God. So God predestined us to be conformed to the image of the son, which is the image of God. That image, going back to Genesis, which human beings perfectly had before the fall, is now restored and will be restored in Christ. As we are destined once more to be conformed to it. And that is the great good that God brings his children to. Everything works together in our lives so that we are brought to this place where we perfectly display in a new heavens and a new earth the image of God. And what's more, we as a new humanity displaying that image of God in a new creation will be brothers and sisters of Christ. Or as Paul put it in verse 17, we'll be co-heirs with him. You see, God's sovereignty takes people from eternity past to eternity present to eternity future. And in all these things, God brings it all together for the good of those who love God, whom he has called according to his purpose. A purpose that takes us from being sinful creatures under his just wrath to adopted sons and daughters, displaying his image in a new heavens and a new earth. This is what he is working out. This is what he is doing. For those whom he predestined, he also calls. The call of the gospel, the effectual call of grace that we hear in Christ. Those whom he calls, he also justified. That is what Romans has been all about. How God takes us and makes us righteous. But he doesn't even finish there. God calls us from our sinful, broken state, makes us righteous. He justifies us in Christ. And we're not only justified, he glorifies us. Again, notice that past tense that Paul uses here. For you see, this process that Paul describes is so certain, so unbreakable, that once God begins it, he will bring it to completion, full completion. We have not experienced that glorification yet. We wait and hope for it. We are not yet fully conformed to the image of the Son. We know that God is sovereign over all things and works all things for the good of those who love him. Now, as we experience it in this life, 
And no matter what those circumstances are or that suffering that we experience, we can rest assured that God's sovereign purpose is that he will bring this process to an end. He who began a good work in you will bring it through to completion. An end that will see his glory displayed in us as we display before a new heavens and a new earth the image of God. We know that our suffering now is the experience of the birth pangs, that we wait and hope for our final redemption. We're not there yet. We're called to share in that suffering. We don't know what we should pray for all the time in our current state, but we have the Holy Spirit to intercede for us. And we know that God in his sovereign purposes works out everything that no matter what he brings his children to, from eternity past through to a glorious future, he has purposed everything for them, for their good. And that is why if you're a Christian, you can say with Paul that the present suffering are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. God in his wisdom and his mercy sent his son just at the right time to die for the ungodly. And together with the Spirit, they have sent the Spirit to indwell us. So from start to finish, the triune God has worked salvation for his people. God has finished it. God has ordained it. God has carried it through and will finally carry it through to completion. And that as a Christian, is where our assurance and our confidence lies in the God who loved us and gave himself for us. Verse 31, the God who is for us, so who can oppose him or us? The God who, verse 32, did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How then will he feel to give us all things? All things, again, referring to all things necessary to bring us to that point of glorification. Who will bring any charge against God's chosen? What possible charge could now be made since the cross, since through that cross we have been set free from all charge, justified by the blood of Jesus? He has propitiated his wrath, paid the price. It's satisfied, it's done. God has finished it on the cross. Christ has died. Christ has risen. The payment is made. Its salvation is there. There is no more charge that anybody can make. And what's more, Jesus himself, now by his very presence in heaven, intercedes for us. The Spirit intercedes for us now, and Jesus intercedes for us in heaven. He is there interceding for his own people. So how then How then, if God has done it all, will he not then bring it to full completion at the last? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, Paul asks. What possible trial or sorrow or suffering or persecution can separate us from Jesus and his love? There is nothing, verse 37, that we can conquer through Christ. God's commitment to us is so sure, so great, so certain that verse 38, not death nor anything in life, not supernatural forces, not height nor depth nor anything that exists or will exist can separate us 
can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, his son. Paul began Romans 8 by saying to us, there is no condemnation. He now finishes it and closes it by saying there is no separation. You see, as Paul has pieced together the gospel, taking us from sinners under wrath to sons and daughters destined for glory, he has shown us He has shown us again and again that we can have confidence. Confidence not in our own good works, not in our own position in the world, not in anything within ourselves, but in the love that God has shown and demonstrated demonstrated for us in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Love that will not let us go. The greatest love of all that Christ gave up his life for us. The love that holds us firmly under God's sovereign hand right through all the struggles of our life with sin and with suffering to take us to a new place. A place prepared before the very foundations of the world where we will see him face to face. Where we will dwell with him and every tear shall be wiped away. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain. For in that place the old order of things will be taken away and God will make all things new. As John records for us in Revelation. You see, that is our hope. That is our confidence. That is where our assurance lies. That is why, in the midst of the trial and the suffering, we don't give in. We keep going. Because we know, we know the God who made it all possible and the God for whom nothing shall separate us from in this life or in the next. The Savior died but rose again triumphant from the grave and pleads our cause at God's right hand, omnipotent to save. Who then can e'er divide us more from Jesus and his love or break the sacred chain that binds the earth to heaven above? Let troubles rise and terrors frown, the days of darkness fall. Through him all dangers we'll defy and more than conquer all. Nor death, nor life, nor earth, nor hell, nor time's destroying sway can e'er efface us from his heart or make his love decay. From each, each future period that will bless, as it has blessed the past, he loved us from the first of time and he loved us to the last. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the promises of your word. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the cross that demonstrates to us your love and commitment towards us. We thank you that even in this present time, we are not left lonely and alone, but you are with us, that you help us in the midst of the trial, that as we live this life, we live it in hope, in hope of what you have promised to us of a new life, of eternal life, of the redemption of our bodies, of a new existence and a new heavens and a new earth that is free from suffering and pain and sorrow. Lord, we thank you for this. Help us in our weakness to continue to have faith in what you have done for us, to keep trusting in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And Lord, as we trust in that gospel, 
We pray that you will do what you say and bring us to be with yourself. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.